0: Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Howdy, WCC. It's good to see everybody. Um... Just in case you didn't know, uh, Justin was Pastor Justin was supposed to preach today, but the poor guy got a tooth infection, a bad tooth infection on Friday, and so he uh, contacted me yesterday and just said he couldn't do it. So pray for Justin. He said it's the worst pain he's ever gone through. If you've ever had a bad toothache, you know what he's talking about. So so be praying for Justin, but we get to continue in our study of the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. And uh, just as a reminder, Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, which is a town in central Turkey. And he wrote this to this little church plant, little church plant this new church. Uh, it's in, it's the, the little town is along this river called the Lycus River Valley. And it's near two other little towns, Hierapolis and Laodicea. And so Paul is writing to this church. And what he is doing, and he gets into the, the meat of it here in Colossians 2, we're going to pick up in verse 8. What Paul is going to do is confront some false teaching that is trying to make its way into the church at Colossae. And just a, you can tell the, the false teaching that, that Paul is, is trying to confront, in, especially in this passage. And beginning in verse 8, uh, you'll see kind of what, what they're dealing with. And so a summary of the false teaching that Colossians are facing is this. There is a Jewish influence there in this area of central Turkey at this time. There was a large Jewish presence. And so these, these people were coming in, and basically they were saying this. They were saying, yes, faith in Jesus is good. Faith in Jesus is fine. But they were saying to reach this fullness in God, to really be filled with God, to have a fulfilling life in God, you needed to do some other things. So you needed to have these strict Jewish practices like circumcision. We'll look at that. And then they also mixed it in with some pagan stuff. And and it was sort of an early form of Gnosticism, if you care about what that means. It's basically this. There's this secret knowledge out there. There's this higher knowledge. And so for you to really be fulfilled in God... You kind of need to leave behind some of the stuff about Jesus and and get this secret knowledge, this higher knowledge, along with these strict practices. And so Paul is going to begin confronting this this false teaching because what Paul is going to say over and over again is that all you need is Christ. All you need is Jesus. We have this union with Christ, and He is what you need. So don't abandon Christ because everything is found in Him. That's where fullness of God is found in Jesus Christ. Okay, So let's go through in verse 8. We'll just read verses 8 to 15, and then we'll just walk through the passage and make a couple of points of application. All right, Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, This is an awesome passage. Let's pray and go to the Lord. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, apply your word to our hearts and that we would see, Jesus, how awesome you are. Please, Lord, work in our hearts. Open eyes for folks who are not born again. Holy Spirit, I ask even during this hour that you would descend upon them and give them spiritual life, all for your glory and praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Colossians 2, verse 8, you can see Paul is warning them about this false teaching. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So, what these guys were teaching, they were probably calling their teaching the philosophy. Okay, and in Paul's day and in our day, philosophy has this positive connotation, this good connotation. You get a PhD, it is a doctor of philosophy. Paul's not saying that all philosophy is bad, right? He's not saying that all philosophy is terrible. What he's confronting is the false teaching that they are presenting. And so, again, what they're teaching, these false teachers, are saying that to be fulfilled, have a fulfilling life, to be filled in God, that you need this teaching, this philosophy. But Paul says right there, it is empty. And you'll see the play on words that Paul does in there. If you look in verse 8, he says it's empty deceit. Okay, But look at other places. Look at uh, verse 9. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Look at verse 10, the next phrase. And you have been filled in him. So Paul's using this little phrase about being filled and fulfilling. What Paul's saying is these guys are teaching that to be fulfilled, you need this teaching. But he's saying, no, it's not filling. It's empty. It's empty. It's void. It's vacuous. It's meaningless. And Paul also says, he says it's uh, according to human tradition. So what they were saying was this, you need this philosophy, this teaching to have this fulfilling life, and they're claiming this human tradition. They're saying it goes back a long way. Hey, this has been taught and helped by people for many generations. And Paul is saying, no, this is basically just made up garbage. This is just bogus garbage that is being taught to you. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So this teaching, this philosophy, this empty deceit that he, he says, no one takes you, make sure no one takes you captive by this. This false teaching can take you captive. You can become a prisoner to it. He says it is according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. This phrase, elemental spirits of the world, is a Greek word, it's stoikeia. And what he's talking about, what it's used in these languages in, in Persia and other places, are talking about demonic spirits. That's what he's referring to with his elemental spirits of the world, demonic spirits. Paul uses the same phrase later on when he talks about rulers and authorities. Okay, so when you see in this passage rules and authority or rulers and authorities, it's talking about, Paul is talking about demonic spirits or demonic beings. So these are, this is a big part of what Paul is referring to here. These are um, invisible beings, demons, evil spirits trying to infiltrate in the church. Okay. And they're trying to, in, they're, they're, the teaching is coming from these demons. And so Paul is basically saying this. And this is the way it is for us. If there's teaching that is taking you away from Jesus Christ, it's not according to the truth. It's, it's from evil spirits. It's demons. Okay? It's, it's, Paul, is in other places, talks about doctrines of demons. Now, for us, I'm going to talk about this later on, but for in our day, you can, go, you can go two ways when you talk about evil spirits. One, you can be too fascinated with them, right? Or you can blame evil spirits for everything. The devil made me do it. You know, rather than, rather than saying, yeah, I acknowledge my sin, we can become too fascinated with demons and devils and things like that. So that's one danger. In fact, we have enough sin in us and in the world, we don't need to attribute anything to demons. Okay? So there's that one position. But there's also this, and I think this applies for us in the West more. There is a tendency to just never think about evil spirits. To just never think about spiritual warfare to never think about demons. And, and we tend to think, hey, I'm an educated, sophisticated person. Only, only foolish, ignorant people believe in demons, right? Only really ignorant folks really still believe in evil spirits. But you can talk to highly educated, very brilliant, intelligent people in places like Africa and the Caribbean and India, and everyone there acknowledges, yeah, we see evil spirits all the time. Now, here in the West, again, it's, it's suppressed. We don't talk about it a lot. But what the Bible makes clear is that there is an invisible world of both angels, good servants of God, and demons, evil spirits of God, that have in some way an influence over the world. And we don't, the Bible doesn't explain how they influence things, but there is an influence so for us to, to believe God's word, we have to come to grips with the fact that there are invisible spirits and invisible beings that somehow play a role in the world. Okay? Now, again, we don't want to go too far and attribute everything to demons, but at the same time, a healthy attitude. So when Paul's talking about, and we'll see it, rule and authority or rulers and authorities, evil spirits, elemental uh, spirits of the world, he's acknowledging that there is an invisible world around us. And it to me, it only makes sense. The, the more physicists understand the world, the more they realize just how much they don't understand, really. The more, the, the more that, that uh, science understands the world, the more they see that this invisible, there is an invisible world around us that is just very strange. And so the Bible, God's teaching on this is that there are these beings who are in rebellion against God and who want to influence the world to take as many people down with them. They know they're doomed. so It's, it's nothing for us to be afraid of. But we do need to recognize that this is the truth of God's word. Okay? So Paul is saying that all these teachings are empty and are influenced by these these elemental spirits, these evil spirits. Verse 9. For in him, so Paul is saying you need to focus on Jesus Christ. Verse 9. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So, in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If you look back in Colossians 1, verse 19, flip back a page to Colossians 1, verse 19, almost the same phrase. So, in in Colossians 2, verse 9, in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Look at Colossians 1, 19. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Almost the exact same statement. Paul is stressing again. That when you look at Jesus, what you see is a man, right? Jesus is a man. He is fully man. But Paul is expressing that in Jesus Christ, he's not just a man. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. He's fully man and fully God. And so Paul is saying that in Christ, is not just part of God. You get the fullness of God. And again, this play on the words. The, The false teachers are saying to have this fulfilling life. Fullness, you need these teachings and these strict practices. And Paul is saying he's using this play on words. No, their teaching is empty and in the fullness of Christ. That's where we find this fullness of relationship with God. All right, verse 10. And you have, and here it is again, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So you have been filled in Christ. Notice how many times Paul is using this phrase, in him or in Christ. If you look back in verse 6, the end of verse 6, Paul says, So walk in him. Next phrase in verse 7. Rooted and built up in him. Verse 10, we're looking at. And you have been filled in him. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised. This is a huge part of, of Paul's teaching. This is a huge part of the Bible's teaching. And what we call this is union with Christ. Being in Christ. What Paul can use the same phrases interchangeably. Being in Christ is the same thing as Christ being in us. It, what it means is when we come to faith in Jesus, we have this union with him. We are so tight with him, we are so intimately connected with him that he's with us, we're with him. And so what this means is, and we'll see this later on, on the cross. Our sin was transferred to him, and his righteousness and goodness was accounted to us, credited to us. So because we are so tight with him, and this affects our walk with the Lord, when you think about Jesus being with you all the time, and everything that he has done for our good, it affects the way you think about the world, that Christ is always with us. He cares about us, and we are so intimately connected with him. And that's what Paul stresses over and over again. The Bible rarely uses the I've said this before, the Bible rarely uses the word Christian. Almost all the time to describe God's people, it is people who are in Christ. In him. Okay? So Paul says, You have been filled in him. So it's like think about taking a bucket and going to the ocean and filling up the bucket full of water. How much does it diminish the ocean? Okay, that's the way it is to be filled with Christ, to be filled up with him. It's no diminishing the ocean at all, just like it's no diminishing to Christ because he's, he is God. He is all fullness of deity dwells in Christ. And so we have been filled with him. We've been filled with all the, the good things that he has in store for us. His love and grace fill us. And then Paul says in verse 10, who is the head, he says, Christ is the head of all rule and authority. When Paul uses this phrase, and we'll look at it again, when he uses this phrase, rule and authority, again, he's talking about his demons, spiritual forces. So in other places, Paul talks about rulers and authorities, and he's talking about spiritual forces of evil. In fact, we'll look at a passage in in Ephesians 6. So so again, Paul's saying that you don't, the Colossians were worried about these demons too much, apparently, these rulers and authorities. And Paul's saying you don't need to worry because Jesus is the head. He is in control of these demons. He has made them. When he made them, they were good. But he's saying you don't need to worry about this because Jesus is the authority, the head over these spiritual forces. Apparently, the church, the church in Colossae was concerned about demons or, or spiritual forces of evil, and they were trying to appease them in some way or being taught that they needed to do certain things to appease the demons. And he's saying, look, Jesus is the head. He's in control over them. They don't move one inch without Christ's authority. Okay. You remember the book of Job, right? In the book of Job, the very beginning, Satan has to go to God to get permission to do things. So Satan and his demons are like they're lackeys for God. They're trying to bring about these terrible things, but Christ is in authority over them and he even uses these demons for his own purposes. He uses them as as lackeys, as just minions for himself. For for Christ to, to bring about his own purposes. All right. Alright, verse eleven. Paul says, In him in Christ also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. All right, what does this mean? There's a lot of debate about this. I'm not going to go into a lot of it. The, the bottom line is this, though. Apparently, the false teachers are teaching that circumcision is necessary to reach this higher life, this fulfillment. Okay? And Paul is saying, you've already been received a spiritual circumcision. Because he says, notice there, he says, you have already been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Okay? By putting off the body of the flesh. Circumcision made without hands. In other words, the circumcision, the true circumcision, is the circumcision of the heart. So p- the Old Testament talks about this. So w- circumcision is a cutting away a part of flesh. And what, the, the, what God talks about is our hearts, our desires, our loves. When we're born, we have these sinful desires, these fleshly desires, these fleshly loves, sinful loves but are in rebellion against God. And when we come to faith in Christ, there is a cutting away of that. So we are no longer now under the dominion or under the control of these fleshly desires. We're not in this realm anymore, okay? We're not, we're not, we don't have to sin. Now, it doesn't mean that we can live a life completely free of sin, right? I mean, just realistically, that we still have these sinful desires, but we're, when, when, before we were born again, we were in this dominion of darkness, in this dominion of sinfulness, where the desires of our heart all the time were to be in rebellion against God. We had no love for God. But when we come to faith in Christ, there is a cutting away of these fleshly desires so that we're not in that dominion or that realm anymore. So I think that's what Paul is saying when he says, this circumcision made without hands, this is spiritual circumcision by the Holy Spirit, by putting off the body of the flesh, this this control of sinful fleshly desires by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, Then in verse 12, we, again see, we see the union with Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, here's union with Christ again, with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All right, so Paul begins talking about baptism, and what he's saying is baptism is a picture of us being in union with Christ. And when you see someone baptized, when you see them go underneath the water, okay, when they're going underneath the water, the picture is them, it's like going into the earth, like dying and being buried. So our union with Christ, when he died, the picture with baptism is us being united with Jesus, us dying with him. In other words, the old self died. The old man died. Our sinful nature, we're not under that dominion of, of sinful desires anymore. We died when Christ died. And now, as when the person is baptized and the person comes up out of the water, it's like a picture of being raised up out of the earth. And our, unite, our union with Jesus is such that now we can walk in this newness of life. We have been raised with him spiritually. So when we come to faith in Christ, it's not that we are looking for eternal life to begin in the future. And Paul's going to talk about life now. Our eternal life becomes the moment we're born again, the moment we come to faith in Jesus. We have eternal life right then, and it never ends. And so, this picture of baptism is, is dying with Christ to self and sin, and then being raised up to be a new person, united with Jesus Christ. And Paul says, as you have been, what, as you, uh, as you were raised, as God raised him from the dead, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So, he's talking about baptism. Notice, too, and I'm just going to touch on this. One of the reasons we do not believe in infant baptism is this, this little verse right here. Because notice when Paul is talking about baptism, he uses the phrase through faith. A lot of infant Baptist proponents link up, use this passage to teach that circumcision and baptism are linked together. And so they say since, since infants were circumcised in the Old Testament, we should baptize infants in the New Testament. But Paul says right here, when he's talking about baptism, he says, raised with him through faith. So we believe that baptism is for people who actually have, have faith in Jesus Christ, have, have put their faith in Christ, and now are united with him. And so that's why we are a Baptist church, and we believe in, in baptizing believers only. All right, let's go on to verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul says, he's talking to this church at Colossae, these Christians. He says, you were dead in your trespasses. Okay? What Paul is saying is, in fact, we looked at in uh, in our order of worship. In, in Psalm 51, I think it was the corporate confession, I was born in iniquity. There's a, when, when we are born, it's not like we're born spiritually alive and then commit sins and become spiritually dead. We are born dead spiritually. And what that means, what, what does Paul mean when he says we, we're dead? He says, you Christians, every one of us, think about this, every one of us in this room is either dead spiritually now or we were dead before in our trespasses. We either were dead or we are dead right now. And so what does Paul mean when he says that you're dead in your trespasses? What he means is you're you're not responsive. You don't have the ability to respond to God spiritually. Just like a corpse laying out, they say he's not responding, right? There's no response. That's the way we are, that's where our souls are. That's where our spirits are before we are born again and given life. We're dead spiritually. We cannot respond to God. We can't respond to the call. So if you put your faith in Jesus, the reason you did that was not because you're smarter than your non-Christian friends. It's because God had mercy on you and gave you life. And now you can respond to God's call. So if you're not spiritually alive right now, if you are dead in sins, what that means is you need new birth from the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to make you alive. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, when we talk about someone being dead, in, in our eyes, right, it doesn't look like people are dead. It looks like people who have rejected Christ or have no interest in the Lord, they can look to our eyes very much alive, right? They can be very physically healthy. They can look physically alive because they are. They can, have, they can have genius minds, very intellectual and yet Paul is saying that they are dead. People can have wonderful personalities, just infectious personalities. Because we're made in the image of God. So God makes people just in a beautiful way. But it doesn't mean that they're alive to God. They're unresponsive to God's call on their lives. And, so you, and you can tell this. Because people are not, they're blind to the glory and the majesty of Christ, Right? If you're blind, if you have no interest in Jesus Christ, if you have no interest in his word, if you've rejected that, that shows that you are unresponsive to God. You're dead in your trespasses. If if you have no longing to be with God's people, if you have no longing to, to have intimate fellowship with God as your father, if you have none of these things, then you are unresponsive to God. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And what? And this is the way I was. This is the way every Christian in here was. There was a time when we were spiritually dead. We were unresponsive to God. The Holy Spirit came within us, gave us life, gave us faith, and now we are responsive. And our cry is we want to draw near to the Lord. We want to be in intimate fellowship with Him. All right, so that's what Paul says in verse 13. You were dead, and now God made you alive with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All right, verse 14, this is wonderful. Verse 14, Paul says, He forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Paul uses a a beautiful picture here. He says, Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. I'm guessing most of us in here, at least the adults, are in debt in some way, right? I think most of us, we either have. What, student loans or car loans or a house loan? Most of us have this debt. And if you've ever paid off a debt, there is just this freedom that comes with that. Man, I don't have to make that stupid car payment anymore because that debt is now paid in full. It's done. I own it clean and I own it clear and clean and it's all mine. So I don't, I have this, I don't, there's this debt when we have, even if it's, you know, a few thousand dollars, there's this debt hanging over us. I remember when we paid off our student loans and, and and we were like, thank you, Lord, that this debt is not hanging over us anymore. Well, the difference is when we have debt of, of a, a car or a house, maybe thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but if hopefully if we've taken on the debt, we can picture the day when we can actually pay this thing off, right? Hopefully we haven't taken on a debt and we go, I'm never going to pay that off. But we can have an idea that at some point in the future... We have this debt that we can pay off. So we can envision this. When Paul's talking about right here in verse 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He's saying that not the debt that we owe to whatever the dealership or the, or the bank, the debt we owe is to God. The debt we owe is to God because of our sins. We have sinned against the Lord. And we owe a debt. And here's the thing. It's not a few thousand dollars. It is a debt that we can never pay. It is a debt that we can never pay. It'd be, like, it'd be like having a debt that you're presented with, and here's your debt, and it's billions of dollars. right? And you begin doing the math. Okay, even if I worked for thousands of years, I'd never be able to pay off this debt. There's no way. And so the debt we owe to God because of our sinfulness, because of our rebellion, is a debt we can never pay. That debt is always hanging over us. And the way Paul describes it is wonderful. He says this debt stood against us with its legal demands. These demands that are against us, that are hanging over us. And Paul says right here that he canceled the record of debt. Okay, and then continuing on in verse 14, he canceled the record of debt. How did he do this? Continue on, it says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He set aside the record of debt by nailing it to the cross. This is wonderful because what Paul is doing, he's mixing two different things in Roman culture at the time. One is this debt, okay, this idea of this debt that we have on us. And then he's also taking the way that when they crucified someone, when they crucified a criminal, what they'd do is, typically, they crucify the person, and above their heads, they would write on the piece of paper what they were being crucified for. And they would nail that in the cross. So you would go by they would always do these crucifixions in a public place. You'd go by and you'd look at somebody being crucified, and you'd look above their heads, and on a piece of paper where it was nailed to that cross, it would say something like "thief." And you would look at him and go, oh, he's being crucified because he was stealing. Or you'd look at the guy crucified, and it would say, murder, okay? And so you'd go and look at this guy, and you'd say, oh, he's paying his debt, right? He's paying this because he's a murderer. That's why he's being crucified. And so you would understand. Now, you remember when Jesus was crucified, you remember what they nailed above his head? I think it said, king of the Jews, so what was and the Jews said no don't put that they went to Pilate and they said don't put that say put he said that he was king of the Jews and Pilate said no what I've written I've written so when Jesus is crucified what is he being crucified for you look over his head and it says king of the Jews he's the king that's why he's being crucified okay but in our in the picture here what Paul is saying is when figuratively. What God did was take this debt, this billions or whatever we owe, and when Jesus was crucified, this debt was nailed over his head on the cross. So you look at Jesus being crucified, and you see what is he being crucified for? All these sins, all this debt that is piled up. But it's not his debt. It's not his sin. It's our sin. It's his people's sin. All the filth and wickedness, the debt that we owe, this huge debt that we could never repay, is now nailed over the cross of Jesus. Okay? So when you look at Christ being crucified figuratively, you see the debt that we owe, the debt of his people. Okay? And then what is Paul saying that happened? When Jesus paid this debt, now now God takes this piece of paper, this debt, and says, paid in full. It's completely paid. This IOU, this debt that we owed to God, was completely paid. So Paul says that he set it aside in verse 14, nailing it to the cross. Beautiful picture of the debt that we owed that we could never pay to God. Jesus paid it in his life and his death on the cross. He paid the price that we could never pay. And now this... This burden, this debt that was on us has now been paid by Christ. It is set aside. We no longer, when God looks at us, so if you put your faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, He doesn't see that debt hanging over your, your head anymore. He sees paid in full. Your account is clean because of what Jesus has done. So He loves us, and because He has paid the price, now we are accepted. You're, think about that. In, in Christ, you put your faith in Jesus. God is saying to you, you're completely accepted by him. You're completely accepted. You are welcomed into his family. He is your father. He's your dad. And he cares about you. And there is now nothing, as Paul says in there is nothing that can separate us from his love, from the love of Christ, from love of God in Christ Jesus. All right, so he, he canceled this debt by nailing it to the cross. And then look what else happened on the cross in verse 15. Paul says that he, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Jesus was on the cross, the, the, here, here's the phrase again, rulers and authorities, that refers to spiritual forces of evil, okay? Spiritual forces, evil, demons, all these things. In fact, turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 6. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. So go to the left a few books. So just remember, Colossians 2.15, Paul's saying he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Okay, now look at... Ephesians 6, look at verse 12. You get a fuller explanation of what Paul is referring to when he says rulers and authorities. Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul's saying we don't our, our wrestling, our fighting, our struggling is not against other people. We're not to do violence to other people. Who is our fight with? He explains. Against the rulers. Against the authorities. There it is, rulers and authorities. What is he talking about? He goes on. Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, again, when Paul is using phrases like rulers and authorities, what he's talking about is spiritual forces of evil in this realm. Okay? So, Paul, back in Colossians, turn back to Colossians 2.15, Paul says that that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed these demonic powers, these demonic beings, these spiritual forces of evil through the cross. Now, see, the amazing thing is Satan and his demons thought they had Jesus, thought they finished Jesus off at the cross. They thought, this is it. We've got him, we have destroyed him, we've destroyed the Son of God but instead there was this great turn that God did he flipped the script on them and what he did actually on the cross was not Jesus' defeat it was satan and demons defeat and so if you picture it like this it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities so he took away their weapons it was almost like on the cross Jesus took not only our sin upon himself, but it's like he just took all the, the arrows and, and weapons and whatever that the demons could throw at him. He took them in himself and received them in himself, and now they have nothing. They have no arms against, they have no weapons against God's people. If you think of, of uh, Satan and demons being like a tiger or some terrifying beast, it'd be like him, Satan, I mean, uh, Jesus knocking the teeth out of this tiger and taken all the claws out. So now this tiger Satan and his demons can make this awful roar and they can be very scary but for God's people they can do nothing against us. They can do nothing because he has disarmed them. Their weapons are taken away. So Christ did all this for us on the cross. And then it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities in verse 15 finally he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul is referring to here is, again, a picture of, of the Roman government. What Rome would do is when the, when the general and the armies would go and they would have a war or a battle or something against a foreign power, when they defeated them, they didn't just slaughter them all. What they do is usually is take them as slaves, and they'd put them in chains. And then to humiliate them, to put them to open shame, after they disarmed them, made them slaves, what they're doing is the, the phrase that Paul is using, put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What Rome would do is take these, these, uh, the army that they defeated, put them, make them slaves, make them look terrible, and then bring them and parade them through the streets of Rome. While the Roman citizens and the emperor are clapping and cheering for their Roman army, they're also embarrassing the, the army that they had just defeated. So what Paul is saying is in the cross, this is what Jesus did to Satan and his demons. He not only defeated them, he put them into open shame, like parading them to show that he is over them. He has authority over these. So again, for us as God's people, we need to have a realistic balance. We don't need to be too fearful of demons and Satan, right? Demons are not God. They can't be everywhere at one time. They're creatures. They can't be all places at one time. They can't meet, read minds. They're not omniscient. So just have a realistic view about demons. They're creatures. They're limited. Also, they're completely under the authority of God. They're under the authority of Christ. So we don't need to fear them. At the same time, we do need to recognize, need to recognize this, this, as, as Luther says in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and though this world with devils filled, right? This world is filled with spiritual forces of evil. Now, what do we do to battle them? It's really simple. I don't know if you caught it in James 4 in our reading. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What spiritual forces of evil want to do is to influence us through sin. And if you resist the devil, resist demons, how? It doesn't mean you speak to them. I I found nothing in Scripture that says we should talk to them. We pray to the Lord. We ask for protection. We stand fast in Christ. We trust in Jesus Christ and know that they can't do any harm to us. And, and, and as I said, even Christ is using these spiritual forces of evil to accomplish his own purposes in some way. So it's to understand that they're real, but at the same time to not fear them as God's people. Okay? All right, let me finish with this. Just in light of, uh, remember what the, the false teachers at Colossae are, t- are saying, is to have fullness in Christ, you need to do these other things. To have fullness in God, have a fulfilling life, you need to do all these other things. And Paul is saying, no, all fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. Okay, And he goes on and talks about what Christ has done at the cross. He has defeated the demons at the cross. He has canceled our record of debt. He's nailed it to the cross. There is no longer any debt hanging over the heads of God's people. We're free from that. We can rejoice in that. He has done it all. He has paid it all. And so because of what Christ has done for us, because of what God the Father has given us when he gave his son, what this should do for us is give us hope for the future. It should give us confidence in the future. Because think about this. If God the Father cared so much for us that he gave his own son to suffer and bleed and die for us. What this means is he is going to do the far smaller things to take care of us on a day-to-day basis, right? If he's done the big thing by giving his own son to suffer and die, he is going to give us the grace we need for tomorrow and for next week and for next month and next year. So for us, hey, we recognize that suffering is a part of this life. Right? We don't want to be the, the, have this sort of false prosperity view. But at the same time, there's a healthy way to think about God has good things planned for us. He will always be with us. And so for us as believers, we shouldn't get in the habit of thinking that the future is full of dread and doom. We should think that, hey, knowing what God has done for us in Christ on the cross, he's got good things for us. Look, at, turn to, with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to close with this. And I really want you to meditate on this and think about this in the coming week. I, I have, I'll tell you this, I have a tendency, and I know many of you do as well. I have a tendency to, when I think about the future, to think about all the bad things that could go wrong and to worry about them and to stress and be anxious. And I can come up with so many scenarios about how many horrible things could happen. And this is kind of just the way that I am. I'm asking the Lord to help me with this. And I've noticed when I begin thinking about the good things that God has planned for me, and I think about the good things that God has planned for you, I'm excited about tomorrow. I don't dread it. I'm excited about next week. Yeah, I know there are going to be challenges. But God is going to be there with me. Christ is going to be there with me. And he has good things planned for us. Look at Romans 8, 32. And again, I want you to just carry this with you this week. Romans 8, verse 32. Okay, we've been talking about the cross and all Jesus has done. And look what Paul says in Romans 8, 32. He, so my God the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's given us his son, Jesus. He didn't even spare his own son. What that means is he's going to give us all things in the future. And what does Paul mean? Everything we need. We may not get everything we want, right? But he's going to give us everything we need. He will give us the grace we need. He will give us the provision we need for tomorrow tomorrow. For next week, next month, next year. And we should be really excited about it. It There should be a joy in a Christian's life to think, I don't know what God is going to do tomorrow. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what the future holds. It it will involve some hard times, but even in that, God is going to make provision. And how do I know that? Because he didn't spare his own son. If he did all these horrible things and allowed all these terrible things to go on his son in the huge thing, then he can do the little things to take care of us, right? He will take care of us, his people. And again, there should be a sense of joy and excitement and anticipation about what God is going to do for us. And we shouldn't be like what I do often and stress and be anxious and and use my imagination to come up with all these terrible things that may happen. What we should do is think, hey, I'm thinking in a false way right now. I need to look at the cross what God has provided for me, and I know he's going to provide everything I need for tomorrow, and it's going to be good. He's going to be with me. I'm a part of his family. He will never leave me or forsake me. All right, so carry that with you this week. Get on Romans 8.32, and when you find yourself stressing about the future, say, hey, I know the father gave up his own son for me, and it says right here he's going to give me all things I need, all things, all love and grace and provision for my life, I'm going to be joyful and excited about what's coming tomorrow because he's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of his people. And we need to trust that in faith and not get down about it. But really trust because of what God has done in Christ, he is going to provide for us in everything we need. Amen. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing passage in Colossians. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross and defeating Satan and his demons. For disarming them for, for, God, especially for paying our debt that was hanging over our heads. The, the wages of sin is death. That was the price that we had to pay. Destruction, punishment, wrath. And Jesus, you took it all upon yourself. And so that debt is gone. And now, Father, when you see us, your people, you see the beauty and righteousness of Jesus. And I pray we would rejoice in that. And, Lord, I also pray that we would look forward to tomorrow and the years and days to come because no matter what we're going to face, even if it's trials and difficulties, you're going to be with us. You're going to provide for us. Everything is in your control, and you care about your people and love your people. So thank you for that. And help us to remember that and to reflect on that in the days and weeks and months to come. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.